within the context of today's scripture reading, that being 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 12, uh, Paul begins uh, by outlining how much better the New Testament is than the Old Testament. And he continues to elaborate on the sincerity that he presents that gospel. What rings, what rang true then at that time rings true today. So Paul continues, uh, beginning in verse 4, 2 Corinthians. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said... Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Amen, and may God bless the reading of his word. So, uh, good morning, everyone. It's great to be back in Portland, Oregon. I'm so glad to uh, be... Just kidding, just kidding. A little bit of a different weather pattern these past couple of days, right? So uh, that's been an intriguing phenomenon to engage. I was at uh, Starbucks yesterday afternoon sitting outside. It was wonderful. There was this very pleasant breeze. I was like, man, I wish I brought my sweater. I'm just kidding. I didn't, I didn't want to bring my sweater. But anyway, great to be with you all. We're going to dive right in. We have got so much to cover today. For those of you who may be visiting our church, my name is Greg Anderson, and I'm uh, serving as interim minister here for the next several months until your new preaching ministry 
minister arrives. And so thank you again for being so gracious and kind to, uh, to me during my time here. Um, we're looking forward to continuing our study today in the book of Nehemiah. If you were here the past couple of Sundays, you know we've been in Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. Uh, if you missed those lessons, just go to the church's website, mesachurch.org. And uh, you can pull those, uh, pull those sermons up. We're going to be reading lots of Scripture today, okay? So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it because you're going to be turning to a lot of different pages. If you are new to the church uh, and you don't have a Bible, please take one of the Bibles in the pew. If you don't know where the references are that we're talking about today, just ask the person beside you if, if you're new to the church and new to Scripture, and they can help show you where some of these passages are and maybe even later get together and talk a little bit about more uh, about how all of God's word fits together. So don't be embarrassed if that's the case. All of us had to learn this. All of us had to grow in our understanding of the word of God. And so we want to do everything we can to make sure that you learn as much as you can about this wonderful book, the word of God. If you'd like a digital version, uh, pull up an app store on your phone, and I would recommend BibleGateway.com. It's a wonderful resource and puts so much Bible study tools right there at your disposal, right on your cell phone. So a couple of weeks back, we began our journey in the book of Nehemiah, and we learned that when Nehemiah heard that the walls of Jerusalem were in ruins, he was just overwhelmed with grief. And he uh, was burdened. He knew that he had to go to Jerusalem. Uh, as far as we know, he had never been there. He had been in captivity his entire life. And so, uh, but, he, but he knew how much this meant to his, his, his family and his forefathers and what Jerusalem stood for. And so he had to get there. And he goes before King Artaxerxes and asks the king's favor to allow him to go to Jerusalem to repair these, these fallen walls. And the king shows him favor. And so Nehemiah makes this journey, and as best we can tell, the journey is actually about a thousand miles. So probably he walked part way. Maybe he was on a camel or a donkey or a mule part way. And so I got to tell you, if I had been on a mule for a thousand miles, I would probably also want the three day break with which this passage that we're looking at today begins, okay? Any, any horse riders in the room? Can I get an oh yeah? Every once in a while, you need a little break, right? So we start today in Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Nehemiah writes, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. And I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. Now, there are four things that immediately get my attention as I look at these few verses. One, he sets out during the night. Second, he only had a few others with him. Third, he didn't tell God's plans to anybody. And fourth, he was the only one who was on a horse, or more likely it was a mule or a donkey. You would need a more sure-footed animal to navigate some of this terrain. But, but here's where we can start putting a few things together. At this point, a plan is surfacing in Nehemiah's mind. But it's not just because of his mental proudness. A, 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 a plan is surfacing because of Nehemiah's prayers. 
Now, his intellect was part of the equation, but I think the prayers to God was driving what was beginning to surface here. And there's this amazing complementary dynamic that is going on here. And here's one of the lessons that I draw from it, and that is praying to plan goes hand in hand with planning to pray. Are you with me? Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that we have to plan every time that we pray, right? As we saw last week, Nehemiah, when he comes into the court of Artaxerxes, he prays a quick prayer to God. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, refers to this type of prayer actually as a a flash prayer, okay? So in this case, it's a prayer for the king to find favor with Nehemiah's request to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And so sometimes prayer is spontaneous. Sometimes a prayer can be very quick, and that can be a beautiful thing. You're passing a mom in the grocery store who looks like she's really, really struggling. Just pray over her as you walk by. You see a homeless person standing on the corner. Maybe you're prompted to help. Maybe you're in a position where you can't. Just pray A prayer to God for that individual. Uh, Pray for your grandkids. Pray for your neighbor. Sometimes we don't have to plan to pray, but sometimes we do. And I think a lot of times it's contextually driven. So what's the context here? Well, we know that the walls of Jerusalem are in ruins. The people of God are also surrounded by those who, with very little provocation, would hurt them. And so although the temple is restored through the leadership of Zerubbabel, we talked about that a few weeks ago, and although community is restored through the leadership of Ezra, the walls around the city, they're still in such a a state of disrepair that an enemy, without a whole lot of effort, could do more than just breach the walls. They could destroy the rebuilt temple. And possibly even worse, they could destroy a nation. So Nehemiah prays. And a plan starts to form in part because he plans to pray. Now I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a bold statement here. And you, you might not like it. <laughs> but sometimes I think we just have to speak very boldly. And so here it is. If we as a church are not committed to prayer, then you should just go ahead and put a for sale sign out in front of your building. Because when we don't pray, this is what we communicate to God. We don't need you. We can figure this out with our own reasoning and by our own ability. And I just want you to think about this. Just just bear with me for a moment here. Isn't it telling That in churches all over America, we can get hundreds, maybe even thousands of people to to get together and listen to a popular preacher or an author. But when we call prayer gatherings, nobody has to fight for a seat. Isn't that telling? I love what Francis Chan says in his book, Letters to the Church, He asks, would you say that prayer plays any meaningful role in the life of your church? If prayer isn't vital for your church, then your church isn't vital. 
That statement may be bold, but I believe it's true. If you can accomplish the church's mission without daily passionate prayer, then your mission is insufficient and your church is irrelevant. The early church devoted themselves to prayer. They knew they couldn't exist without it. If God didn't come through, they could never fulfill the mission he had given them. And so they were constantly on their knees together. Richard Foster makes another wonderful observation about prayer. I quoted him last week, but in his book, Celebration of Discipline, he writes, To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, James 4, 3. To ask rightly involves transformed passions in prayer real prayer we begin to think God's thoughts after him to desire the things he desires to love the things he loves to will the things he wills progressively we are taught to see things from his point of view so let's return to Nehemiah's context even though a plan is forming as a result of of prayer Nehemiah isn't being open about his plans just yet. He's being very methodical, strategic, purposeful as he surveys the landscape. And and nothing indicates, by the way, that he stopped praying. Nothing indicates that he stopped trusting the Lord. Quite the contrary, he, he actually continues to honor God as the source of every decision he makes. Nehemiah 2 verse 12. So there's a phenomenon that's going on here, I think, that provides an incredible lesson for people of faith. There is great spiritual wisdom in making a plan and working that plan. Put another way, Nehemiah models beautifully what it means to partner with God to make a plan and work the plan. Make a plan and work the plan. So let's break it down a little bit. Making a plan takes time. It takes energy. And most importantly, it takes commitment. And I'm going to tell you, in our day and time, if we don't have a plan of how we're going to deal with the enemy, because the enemy is after us. You've noticed that, right? You've noticed that the enemy is after us. If we don't have a plan of how we're going to deal with him, even during our our childhood years, during our teen years, as we grow into adulthood and beyond, if we don't have a plan, then a plan's going to be made for us. And I can tell you right now, the plans of of the world are no match for the plans of God. So it's going to take commitment. Making a plan is, as I said earlier, it's contextual. In Nehemiah's case, he had to formulate his initial plans at night. Why? Because enemies were about. There were those who were very eager to sell his intentions to those who could do him harm. So nighttime provided cover. Also, there were only a handful of people who went with him, meaning he was very purposeful about who was part of this early conversation. Those who were with him probably didn't know everything he was considering at this point, but they did contribute to his success, and as a result, they laid a foundation of ownership of the plan. I'll also make this point. 
Working the plan is harder than making the plan. Would you agree? Working a plan is harder than making a plan. The gravitational pull of a family system, of a church system, of a business, the gravitational pull is incredibly strong. To go back to what we've always done is incredibly strong. Not that all that we've done is bad. A lot of what we've always done is great. But sometimes what we've done is getting in the way of what we need to do. The opinions of people around us are so varied. Have you noticed these days everybody has an opinion? Have you noticed? Have you noticed that? And these days, too, we have platforms for those opinions to be expressed, right? The critical spirit of those who would prefer to throw rocks at versus lifting prayers up on behalf of others. Our own personal brokenness, and we could just go on and on and on. All of this makes it very difficult for us to work a plan. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as our series progresses. But today, I want to focus just for a few moments on making a plan. So let's re-engage the text and see what we discover. Nehemiah 2.13 By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, and so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back, and I re-entered through the valley gate. So in Nehemiah's case, working the plan reveals several great leadership characteristics First of all, he's prayed up. We talked about this a few Sundays ago. He is prayer full, right? His his prayer bucket is is full and overflowing. Second, he's also purposeful. He's full of purpose. He's laying out his plans. Third, he's getting in the trenches so he can see for himself the scope of the damage. He's not sending somebody else out to do the work. He's getting in the trenches himself. And fourth, he knows where they've been. And so this informs where he is going. And if you'll look at this map that's on screen, you're going to notice three circles that showcase the gates that are mentioned during his journey in this one night. So Nehemiah knows where his people have been, but he's not, he's not paralyzed by it. little history lesson this morning. Knowing where you've been can typically keep us from repeating the mistakes of the past as we live into the future, right? Typically, if you know where you've been, you in part want to know what you need to avoid as you go forward into the future, right? So what was Israel's past? What got them to this point? So when the Assyrians threatened to attack Jerusalem in 701 B.C., King Hezekiah builds a wall... And he repairs sections of an original wall that was built by a group of people called the Jebusites. They built this on the east side of the city. The Jebusites thought they had built a pretty awesome wall. You remember the makers of the Titanic who said not even God can sink the Titanic? You remember that? Remember that? Yeah, that's probably not a good thing to say, by the way. Um, 
So the Jebusites basically had there not even God can sink the Titanic moment. Okay, notice this in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. So the king, David, and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in, in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. And they thought David can't get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. He then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because, okay, church, say this with me. The Lord God Almighty was with him. So when David captures Jerusalem, you may be fascinated to know this. You, you may not. I thought it was quite intriguing. The, the area of the city, it, it probably wasn't a whole lot bigger than your current church campus. Okay, It was really only about 12 acres or so of land. However, as time passes... The scope of the city, the, the fortification grows dramatically until um, in ancient times covering a, a space about 10 times the size of what the city was when David took it over. And so I want you to notice what happens under King Hezekiah's rule in Second Chronicles chapter 32. And so then he, that's King Hezekiah, who's the 13th king of Judah, he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one, and he reinforced the terraces of the city of David. So Hezekiah's wall is really strong. In some sections, it's, it's like 16 and a half feet wide, and it goes all the way around the city. Archaeologists have uncovered large portions of Hezekiah's wall, and most likely, that's the wall with its gates. That's the wall that Nehemiah is working on when he returns from Babylon. Are you with me so far? Okay. Okay. I'm seeing some head shaking like this, so I'll take that as an affirmation. All right. So let's review the leadership traits. And then I want to add a fifth. First of all, Nehemiah is prayed up. He's prayerful. He is also purposeful as he lays out his plans. He's down in the trenches so that he can actually see the damage. He knows where they've been, which informs him of where they need to go. And fifth, he identifies where the work is most needed. And then, and I love this. I, love, I just love this. There is this very... Dramatic pause. The officials didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing. Because I, as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or anybody else who would be doing the work. And we don't know how much time passes. Here's the dramatic pause. But then we see this word, then. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. You see, Nehemiah, he lays out the problem. 
He lays out the cause of the problem. He identifies how they're going to fix it and paints a picture of the end result when it's done. That's making a plan, a plan that they are about to start working. They are in disgrace, but that's not where they want to be. They want a different outcome. They want to be in God's grace, not in disgrace. We don't have time this morning to process every aspect of the plan, but there's one particular portion I want to key in on, and that's the history of what led to this current situation. So a few more references. Hang in there with me. 2 Kings 25, beginning at verse 1. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah, and by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. And I want you to notice a key phrase here. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled. Okay, I might be missing something here. But if I'm reading this correctly, it wasn't the king of Babylon breaking in. It was the king of Judah breaking out. So the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem began as an inside job. There's a little bit more. Hang in there with me. 2 Kings 25, verse 8. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaderan, commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And so now, church, can you see how Nehemiah's words just make more sense? The city lies in disgrace. But it's not for the reason you might think. Because the question I would have, and some of you know a lot more about military tactics than I do, But a question I was having, why why did Babylon destroy the walls? If if the king is taking over the city, doesn't it make more sense to keep it fortified? Wouldn't that make more sense? But here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar is fulfilling what God began. And this is where we see the true picture of disgrace for God's people beginning to emerge. So let's back up a chapter earlier. And I want you to notice what the text says in 2 Kings chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. As the Lord had declared, see that phrase? As the Lord had declared. 
Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace, and he cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men, and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000, only the poorest people of the land were left. So all of that background to say this one thing, and I cannot stress this enough, God is serious about righteousness. I want you to notice this in 2 Kings 21, beginning at verse 10. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I'll stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab, and I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Have you ever heard the phrase, leaving someone out to dry? Okay, that's what's happening right here. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. Wow. When Nehemiah says, come, let us rebuild and we will no longer be in disgrace. Here's the aha moment. It's like the opening of the eyes of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. It's it's that come to our senses moment. And it's not just for a man. This is a reawakening for a nation. Because we have to understand something about where the Jewish people were. Jerusalem, it's not just about brick and mortar for the Israelites. Jerusalem is at the heart of their covenant with the Lord. It's a covenant that when they found themselves in distant country, just like the prodigal son, it made them long for home. I want you to see how the psalmist laments their their situation in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Now do you see the insight into Nehemiah's despair? Does it not help us better understand the devastating consequences of sin? Doesn't it remind us that God and darkness can't 
coexist and that paying attention to the word of God and and doing everything we can to bring people into the kingdom of God is worth all the time and all the money and all the energies that we expend? And you may be thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that Jesus came and took our, our sin upon himself. And I would say amen and amen. But church, Jesus did not say, he didn't say this. He didn't say, seek first to keep one foot in the kingdom and another foot in the world and everything will be hunky-dory. And, and I, I don't really even know what hunky-dory means, but, you know, I, I think it's good. But in the case of rebelling against God, it's not good. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. And then everything else in your life will orient around that pursuit. The people of Judah forgot God. But here's what's so beautiful about how all of this unfolds. The people of Judah forgot God. But because of his unfailing love, God never forgot Judah. Notice what Nehemiah says in 2.18. I also told them. Just look look at this phrase. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. From disgrace to grace what the king had said to me they replied let's start rebuilding and so and this is one of my favorite phrases in the entire bible so they began this good work see the walls that are broken can finally be rebuilt because hearts are broken and they're ready to rebuild And one by one, they begin to understand that they had been part of the problem. And now they want to be part of solution. And the people whose ancestors had been driven out said, we're all in. And when that happens, and wouldn't you have liked to have been there? When that happens, somebody, one person, picks up the first brick. And the energy And the focus, the faith, and the resolve, all of it stirs in the hearts of the people. And they begin this good work. However, (laughs) every time the people of God begin good work, what happens? Every time. The enemy is just biding his time, right? Just waiting. Um. Because when the people of God begin to move, those who prefer darkness over light will not sit still. We read in verse 19, But when uh, Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked, they ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? And I think it's significant uh, that these three bond together in opposition to Nehemiah because in some ways they, they represent this attempt to press in on all sides to derail Nehemiah from his plans. And I know that as a minister, I often feel 
uh, similar pressures, knowing that every time that I step into the pulpit, that there are those who are looking for opportunities to pounce, knowing that there are always some who want to invite the minister to lunch and some who want to eat the minister's lunch, okay? Um, and I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I don't think it's good. Uh, so I'm sure you often feel the same way, right? That's not just something that happens to ministers, probably in your job, maybe in your career calling, maybe as a teenager in school, you sometimes feel this pressure. But I want you to know, church, there will always be people who are against you. Always. Individually and collectively. Even the Apostle Paul felt this, uh, felt this pressure. Those who prefer the way of darkness over the ways of God. We read this earlier, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. We're scratching our head, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Hear me, hear me, please. No matter what we do and no matter how well we do it, there will always be those who disagree. And there will always be some who want to cause a fuss. And that is why we must, like Nehemiah, plan to be informed by who and what is around us, but listen first and foremost to the voice of God in everything that we do. The text tells us, I answered these men by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And I think the most important part of that verse is this phrase, the God of heaven will give us success. And may we as a church own that in our hearts, even as God owned it. So I leave you with this question. Why does any of this matter? How does all of this relate to being the hands and feet of Jesus in this interim season and beyond? What about these verses? What prepares us to be a church that helps others seek Jesus and find Jesus and share Jesus? Here are just a few takeaways for your consideration. I believe that God's plans will surface if we commit to prayer. And so, church, I just encourage you individually, in your families, collectively as a church body, keep on praying. I also believe that once God reveals the plan, that we as a church have got to commit to working that plan. That's why the survey that's coming up is so important so that we can understand where your heads are and where your hearts are and then be able to create plans around that so that this, this, uh, this church body can become a, a movement here in Mesa and beyond. I also think that a plan without motivation is like a car with no gas, Okay. I can't make you be motivated. I could jump up and down and I can you know, yell, cajole, whatever I need to do maybe, but I, that's only temporary motivation. That's just motivation that'll last uh, for a day or two and then it's done. The motivation that we have got to strive for is being motivated inly, inwardly by the power of God's Holy Spirit. God never forgets us, church. May we always remember him. And the last takeaway for me is this, that when the people of God are all in, I believe that's when good work begins. So I hope this message has challenged you today. I hope these takeaways will bless you and encourage you in your daily walk. We're going to be talking more uh, two weeks from today about making a plan and working the plan and what that means for the Mesa Church of Christ. We're going to share a song together right now. If there's anything in your heart 
that you would like to share with this church body, you've got an opportunity to do that. A request for baptism, a request for prayer, a desire to place membership and become part of this church body. A couple of shepherds will be up here at the front. Let's stand together. Let's sing together.